Welcome to Welcome to Where Wellbeing Meets Art. Where Wellbeing Meets Welcome to Where Wellbeing Meets Wellness and Where They Depart and Where They Depart. Welcome to Where Wellbeing Meets Art and Where They Depart. Hello, welcome back, fine people, to this podcast. Today we've got a bit of a curveball compared with our uh, sort of muso aspects in the last episode. Uh, I met this person, this wonderful character, uh, who was doing a stand-up show at a lot of the festivals. I found out that he then ran saunas and put communities together, but I met him as this particular comedy character. And I'm not going to say much because the intro to this podcast is his appearance when he was doing the Edinburgh Festival got on Scott Mills Radio 1 show in the afternoon and uh, actually met the character that he's connected to. I'm going to leave it there, enjoy the intro and then we'll get into the podcast with Mr. Adam Wilder. Who are you, please? Thank you. My name is Stefan Gophausen. I am the third best David Hasselhoff impersonator from my village. <laughs> Excellent. So, from his village. Third from his village. Yeah, I'm the third best. Third? I am only the third best. Muti, Muti is number one. one. Who? Who's my that? mother is number one. Oh! Yeah, yeah I am Wait. fighting her every year, but she is still winning. Oh. So, so, you are from Bavaria? Yeah, that's is such, yeah. Yes, and you are the third best. David Hasselhoff impersonator in your village. And also the coolest postal worker in the whole of Bavaria. Excellent. Now, <laughs> you have a show here in Edinburgh, right? That is correct as such, yeah. Uh, and what's it called as such? It is called Sohoff und Friends. Okay. David, does a- this make you feel weird? Oh, very. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what you said before. No. <laughs> I said, may the Hoff be with you, and then I walked away, and, and actually I ran away, and because I called my girlfriend, and she said she had a picture with you, and that really scared me. Yeah. <laughs> what happens in your show? Well, I um, gather people from the street, and I convert them into the Hoffism. We make this prayers about the Hoff sire. We Aww. recreate the fall of the Berlin Wall with aeroplanes spreading your love. Oh. And we worship you. We make the sacred Hefelhof sound. Hefelhof, ho! <laughs> and I have done it just as you sent me instructions with your telepathy. Oh. I have my own profile on Hopspace. I follow you everywhere. I love you so much. You cannot understand. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, what's your name again? Stefan Gophausen. Stefan Gophausen. It's lovely to meet you. Uh, why not shake hands with your actual idol? Will you? Will you touch? No, no, not oh, there. No. Okay. Oh, just, no, just the chest. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stefan. Hello. Be off with you. May the half be with you. Yeah. Okay. No, just wait for the Thank you. Well, welcome back to where well-being meets art and where they depart. Really excited about today's guest. Can you just intro what that was about? And we'll talk about other things you've done, but yeah, just to go in on that. Sure. I'd love to. I, I'd love to. The premise was, can I do a uh, fake German David Hasselhoff impersonator that gives the audience a real religious emotional experience around david hasselhoff that was the premise of the show and it was so fun to do and it was so fun to take an audience on on a journey and to and to use humor and guile and fake german accents and leggings and and every every trick in the book and the show would culminate with a recreation of the fall of the berlin wall 
Um, because that's that's the big thing about David Hasselhoff. It's, it's like, you know, everywhere around the world, like he's, he's getting on a bit now. So I don't know if many people, depending on how old you are, will, will remember David Hasselhoff. But there was a time when he was just like this, this God. And in Germany, he was known as this, just like, we just had this, he had this mystique. Everyone in Germany thought he was amazing because he was invited um, on New Year's Eve in 1989 to sing on the uh, the Berlin Wall, his song. German market was his biggest marketplace. He sold a shit ton of records because he not only was he in Baywatch and Knight Rider, but he also was a music act. Can you just do one <coughs> sentence to Stefan? Bring him back. Hello, my name is Stefan Gaphausen. I'm the third best David Hapfelhoff impersonator from my village. Wasn't Stefan's mum involved somehow as well? Was she not a... Yeah, really she, was, the <laughs> she was the number two impersonator. And uh, <laughs> so, and you know, so this is interesting because the story, Stefan's story, I mean, it was weird, man. And, and this is what I like about artistry and creativity. The storyline was like a little bit about my own life in some way. And the whole story was... You know, I wasn't popular at school and uh, I did something wrong and I was punished. I was made to only wear one shoe at a time and I would hop around the village. I mean, it was really weird, um, but so fun. And, and people like entered this world of Stefan, of this like weird, lonely German kid. And, and we went from that place to this kind of transcendent experience um, of, of like dividing people into East Berlin and West Berlin and then bringing them back together with, with slow motion running. And I don't know if you know the Tannhauser Pilgrims Chorus. Um, it's just an incredible piece of Wagner with these like strings just sort of cascading and, um, and, and bringing all that together, all that pathos and connecting with, with, with people their own sense of, of like belonging and togetherness and, and being a part and, and, and longing was just so fun. And, and I loved it, man. I loved it. It was weird and I loved it. In that scenario, you touched on it on our phone call and I wonder whether you're up for talking about the necessary amount of ego to even think that you can sort of create this thing and get up to an audience and actually perform it. The reason I got out of comedy is because actually it was really painful, man. Like I, I started when I left university, myself and some friends, we started a traveling sauna at festivals, right? And we would do these spiritual festivals with my favorite because everyone's quite serious about their chanting and their meditation. And what it really needs is, is, is the fool to come and hold up the mirror and laugh at it lovingly. Um, and so, and, and so like one night I started doing that. Well, this is going to feed into the whole ego thing. So stay with me. Um, I remember one night it was a Buddhist festival. We'd taken some mushrooms um, and this, at the time, this is called Buddha Field. It was run by a group of, of Buddhists who were like hardcore committed to meditating, hardcore committing to these Tibetan Buddhist chants. So they were really in there. And they would create on a Saturday night at this festival really incredible rituals. And for this year, the ritual was they, they created a kind of samsara, 
you know, the kind of hungry ghosts thing. And they'd, they'd set up like an outdoor lounge and someone was dressed up like your granny. And we had to process through this samsara. It was kind of like an early immersive theater experience, you know, before it was a thing. Um, and we had to kind of wind our way through these people, say, like, trying to get us to sit down and watch telly with them, trying to say, you know, stay here and talk bollocks to me and, and take drugs. And we had to wind our way. And we got to the top of top of the hill and everyone was, was chanting, like, om, om or something like that. I mean, I was pretty high. And then they, when everyone was there, they started, um, they lit up like a green, green flares and they were waving them in the tree line and all the shadows and the smoke and the green was amazing. And then they started letting off flashbangs and saying things like, I call the green Buddha Omoga Siddhi. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty epic. And that's the Buddha of unstoppable success. Um, so this was a pretty amazing experience. And I went back down to this cafe that we had this, this sauna and I'd been saying to my friends, Oh, I really want to do performing. I really want to do performing. And my friend said to me, look, this is your chance. Everyone's here. You know, do it now. And, and I, and I stood up and I put on a foreign accent and I started chatting. Okay. Um, and, and it was, and it was fun and engaging and, and it was joyous and it was an edge. So there, there really is an edge, I think, to, to beginning. Um, but this journey with, the ego is man it's so terrible the reason i stopped is because it was it was painful like when things didn't go right or feeling that i'm only as valuable as as my last gig or feeling like this medium i can't do the art that i really want to do or feeling if i want to do the art i want to do maybe i'm gonna be penniless forever and and those things for me actually like weighed on me uh, too much in the end and and sometimes when gigs would go well i would get conceited and think i was amazing and all it would take then is is to go and have a bad gig to be humbled again and then as soon as i was humbled i got kind of good again you might have a packed house but it's the shows when you're really knackered and two people show up and you still do your show like that's where you learn to be a really talented performer because that's where you have to give all this extra energy it's where you have to be the sharpest you have to go through that until you find this kind of integrated place where you can stand to be sure of yourself and be in your metal but you've got like one foot on the humility and one foot in the stars when you talk about humility i'm wondering what the connection of the humility and presence is is there a disconnect yeah yeah, I think there's a, there's an expectation that this is going to go amazing. Um, and so starting out, going back to the festival, starting out on the festival circuit, for me, it was my ideal audience. Okay, people are already halfway opened up. Um, that You know, they're sitting on the floor in a tent. So anything can happen and anything did happen. And we would do competitions to find out who's the most spiritual person at the festival which ended up with naked mud wrestling and so i thought that i was hot shit i thought i was so good because i because at the festival scene everyone wanted to come to our venue and see what was going to happen next and and it was really busy so i thought i'm gonna i, I went and watched a, a stand-up gig in london and i thought oh yeah i could really smash it here i could do really really well <laughs> So uh, I did a I did a gig, an open mic gig, and I was 
terrible. I was like by a long way the very worst person on the bill. And it was it was very humbling. And it was me going in with this expectation that I'm great, everyone's gonna love me. Um and and I was completely disconnected from the audience. So I was in my own head and I was not sensitive to them. And and I think the humility in, invites this sensitivity. It's like, yeah. Uh, um, I did a lot of training in clowning and I worked a lot with um, Phil Berger's Dr. Brown. Don't know if you've ever seen him. And we, we used to run this retreat together called Clowning in Nature. And, and his thing about the clown is you've, you've always got like one foot in the humility and, and one foot is like optimistic. And the clown is like always asking with their eyes kind of, do you love me now? Do you love me now? And, and they're checking in with the audience at the whole time. So, so there's this rapport, right? There's this flow. And I think that's really important for a performer to feel, to feel connected to the audience. See the ego thing, you've looked at it and now you, you've gone away from that and we can talk about what you're up to now, but wondering what, what that decision was rather than once you've become more familiar with that, whether you would uh, want to carry on. I, I think for me, um, actually, I was quite depressed at, at times, just feeling stuck, feeling like this is a very hard road to go and feel, feeling unstable, okay, with the uncertainty of how am I going to pay my bills and what am I going to do and I'm getting older. And I saw a lot of comedians on the circuit with, with you know, quite blatant mental health uh, problems. And, now, and a lot of people have mental health problems. But I think when you're when you're doing it because you need that love because you can't get it anywhere else, then you, you like what I noticed. I was doing it to try and fill this hole inside me. Okay, I was doing it to try and feel good about myself. And there were moments that were like transcendent, where it went beyond that, and the audience shifted into a, a state. Like I think my best ever experience was like when the night was just so good and we, we got everyone to go to their tents and get their bedding and we had a massive sleepover in our in our venue and it was just special and amazing and and so there were moments like that but when especially when i did comedy outside of the festival world like it was just it was just tough man and like since then what i've done is i've gone on and i've kept my performing skills and my love of being with an audience and I've, I've kept all of that but i've integrated it into the work i'm doing now and another teacher of mine jonathan Kay, who teaches fooling he says basically if you work with people you're always working with an audience and and i think that's i think that's true so no, i would like just to, to give a little bit more on that before we get go into great my performing before was was kind of made up and character based and i didn't really have much training then i got really into this guy jonathan k um and i got really into phil burgers and the clown teaches us this sensitivity to the uh, audience so like there's there's one clowning exercise where you have four or five people at the back of the stage and uh, there's a shoe on the front of the stage in front of each of them and there's an audience watching so in all these games it's, you know people who aren't in it are watching and the, the clowns are only allowed to move forwards towards the shoe when they feel like the audience loves them and when they feel like the audience doesn't love them anymore they have to move backwards 
And the game is about you have to go and get the shoe and make it back to your place at the at the back of the stage. And this is a game that you can't fake. If you try and just go and take the shoe, they're going to hate you. It's like we want to see you like as you are. We want to see your vulnerability. We want to see that tenderness. And it's very exposing to have that attention and and to get this awareness of do these people love me or not and and that taught me a lot about how to be with an audience and how to be more sensitive to them when i'm visualizing that now i was thinking well what would i do in that situation i thought let the audience know how awkward it is for me to get the shoe and thinking about like how am i going to get this fucking shoe when it's based on you loving me and this is so weird and awkward and being able to show and express that i'd imagine is part of the idea of like you said being vulnerable let's not hide the fact this quite weird course i'm gonna feel like i want to make you laugh as soon as i try and act up to that you're gonna hate me we love it as an audience when we see people being stressed or, or upset or you know being we just we just love it and um phil so phil burgers is one of my favorite performers he trained with um philip gollier the guy who trained sasha baron cohen and so it, it's kind of a modern style of clowning and and his shows and i recommend anyone to go and see his shows he's got some stuff on netflix he's got a few shorts on um on youtube like he's just expressing these parts of our humanity that we're always trying to hide, that we're always trying to be okay with. And we just love seeing them, seeing it played out so kind of really and foolishly. And just on that, you know, this feeds into learning to be unapologetically me because no one else is me. Telling people how awkward I feel at the time. It might be counterintuitive to someone that's not in that group. The idea that you call it out and you feel people sort of, oh, thank God someone's fucking said it, you know? Like, oh, oh I was feeling exactly the same or the difference, I, it's the thing that's just come to mind, but the difference between hiding a fart or, or calling a fart. <laughs> it, it's the simplest sort of weirdest, yeah. stupid, you know, like... <laughs> Like, as soon as my missus says, did you just fucking make that horrible spill? And it's like, actually, I won't allow that. I'd rather just start, sorry, babe, incoming, you know, like, but but the difference between then if she's calling it and I haven't and I become defensive, that owning our own things, but not thinking that everyone else doesn't go through all this shit all the time, you know, that no one's ever felt like you and that you're the awkward one. And and as soon as you realise that, that people, a lot of people won't speak up about what's going on for them. And and you actually yeah. help them in a way doing that. Sorry, go on. What, what is, this is what I find interesting. So just going back to the clown thing for, for a moment, like when we love the clown the most, it's when they're there with nothing. When, in these clowning workshops, when people come out and they try and impress you and they've thought of all these gags, which they think are really fun, they try and do it. And we just, we generally hate it, okay? But then then something happens because the more we hate them, the more they drop into this humility and vulnerability and then they become real. And and then from that realness, from that place of nothing, like we love them. And then what they create from from that place, we love it. 
And, and I think it's like that with a lot of performers and comedians, the ones I like, it's like they have a relationship with that nothingness, with that owning the like, yeah, we fart, yeah, we do this stuff. Like, yeah, you know, I know what it's like to be alone and I'm not, I'm not the most amazing person. Um, but you know, I'm here and look at this. We love that. Uh, so I, I love that in performance. And I think like I noticed that with the musicians and actors and everyone that I, I really enjoy as well. It's like, I feel like they have this relationship with themselves. Like they're, they're comfortable with themselves. They, they have some awareness of maybe their shadows, their dark sides, the, the bits that ache. And, and then from that, they can still stand and, and own all of it and share themselves with us. And for me as an audience member, that's, that's liberating because yeah, it helps me to make contact with those bits in myself. And I think that's what great performance is, is about. It gives us more access to ourselves. It's almost like a ritual where that person on stage is living a part of us. And by witnessing that, we're, we're like feasting on it and, and sharing that experience. And it creates an intimacy. And what do you think, Brett? The, the willingness to own the good and the bad of us afford us a better well-being. Less in the head. Just like, yeah, uh, look, I'm a bit of a dick. Sometimes. Yeah, I was just a dick there. Sorry, you know, yeah. You know, of course, uh, I'm a dick sometimes. And sometimes I'm really nice. And it doesn't mean... I'm not going to pretend that I'm a really great guy all the time because it's tiring. And also you get found out because you're going to be a dick at some point. It's kind of like being in a swimming pool and having all these inflatables, these things we want to and like trying to keep them pushed underwater and they keep on trying to like come to the surface. So we're sort of awkwardly in the pool trying to keep all these things down. And actually, if you can like own it and just let it up and like, oh, what a liberation. Now you can move around, you can swim, like you're free, like, okay, people can see all the stuff you were hiding, but they'll relate to you more. And I think this is something about coming into our individuation, coming into our artistry, coming into an intimacy with, with life and with ourselves. It's, it's this balance between being sensitive to the world, but also having the courage to be ourselves and to express ourselves in our unique way. My background as well, big people please. I had relationships where I was just trying so hard to imagine what this person wanted me to be. And then I would try and to be that. And you know what, sometimes it didn't work and um, you know, and relationships ended. Sometimes it worked for ages and I still didn't enjoy the relationship one bit because I felt like they weren't really connected to me they didn't really care about me but just an idea of me that i created for them and i and i felt that a bit when i was a, a comic because people would imagine that i'm this really funny guy and i must have a great life all the time and i'm amazing and you know sometimes i was really depressed and and sometimes people were projecting things on me that I felt was hard to live up to. And again, I felt like they didn't really know me or care about me. So there was a loneliness. And um, I do imagine that people like at the, at the top end of their game, uh, who were incredibly well known, that it's very hard not to feel lonely. So you went from there, you begin this sort of opening up to the point that you're, you're sharing this now. I'm interested in a bit more about that 
that journey and then into where you are now. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, I pretty well, I went from doing comedy to promoting comedy and, and theatre. Uh, the things that I really enjoyed, and I worked with this amazing guy called Eric Davis, who's a, a bouffon and he had a show called red bastard an act called red bar did you come and see that show i brought him to, to london and so he's i did i saw it at the jackson's yeah. lane and it was pretty uh ed- tastic, i'd say yeah it's i liked his show because it was real and, and edgy and he would basically like the the bouffon kind of cajoles and criticizes and and pokes and then also like charms and, and wins you over like all at the same time and and he would sort of prod people and bully them and sort of ask them like why aren't you doing what you really want to do and he would he would get he would find out three people like what is it what's who's someone you really want to speak to now and someone's like oh i want to tell ring up my dad i haven't spoken to in 20 years and tell him that i love him or I want and he would get them to sometimes get their phone out and ring that person up and sometimes they would connect with that person and sometimes they wouldn't answer the phone but it was it was like edgy and real and it was it was like an art it was an art that that inspired you and pushed you into your humanity more so I I loved working with him um and I worked with some some other comics and and I diversified a bit. I started a speed dating company with no talking called Shush Dating. And that was really fun because it was about going all this boring, these boring dates that happen. People just, right? Like the people pleasing. I'm going to say what I think I should say in order to get you to like me or sleep with me. Right? And so the idea was what if we get rid of all of that and we just have nonverbal connection games and then people can talk at the end of the night. Like, how's that going to work? And we did it, and it, and it was like pretty successful. And it's kind of funny actually because we had a press release for our first night, and it, and it went out and it got picked up by the Daily Mail, and they wrote a massive two-page article about it. And it was before we really had a website or a presence or or, or anything. And the Daily Mail is a really big website, so it got picked up around the world, and. Um, so it got picked up by Fox News, and I think I've still got this clip. I think it's Tucker Carlson, like reading out this thing and then showing a screenshot of our Facebook page with 17 likes and just saying, "This is such a scam. This is just ridiculous. How can you date without talking?" It was so funny. Look, come and do this experience. At the end, you'll definitely have something to talk about. So it was fun, and people actually got married and have had children through through that. And I ran that for about eight years. And I, I, I started a hot tub bar in Hackney Wick, and that was quite fun. And um, so I got, you know, I, I did a lot of different things. But but then, like, I had this quite transformational year. I went on this big retreat called Path of Love. I did a big psychedelic journey. Um, and I went to a Tantra festival in London. I'm not going to say what it was called, Brett but I thought it was really bad. Okay. Um, it was like, I came in and it was like a kind of 1970s Eastern European stag do. It was just really weird, man. And, and, and the, a lot of the presenters were awkward and like reading off clipboards and 
the thing is there were some some good things there and like i yeah i've been involved in the world of tantra and intimacy i've been very interested in it and i thought what they're doing here is is pretty interesting but they're presenting it really badly and this is geared towards the 0.01% of people who've got more than six crystals right who who love their 14 chakras and they're guaranteed uh, DNA upgrade and that kind of thing right so i thought look, what we need to do is take this great relational stuff but let's offer it to the 99.99% of people who think that's all bollocks or who find it hard to connect with that. And, um, and that thought really stuck with me and I had such a strong feeling like, I know how to do this better. And, and so the next year I created Togetherness, created a festival of human connection. And we did it in Canary Wharf. And we had 500 people up there for a weekend doing different intimacy practices it was it was covered by the guardian people had a really good time a really transformational time and that was the watershed moment the way we relate to each other what it, what is it that we really want for my people pleasing i know how how easy it is to focus on what someone else wants and how vulnerable it can be to say what it is that you really want how vulnerable it can be to admit our real desires and like one example of that is I, I um, you know, I work one-on-one with clients um, and sometimes people come and they share stories about basically going out and, and having sex with lots of different people, but fe- feeling empty. And um, ultimately what they realize is actually all I really wanted was to be, to be hugged or, or to be spooned or, what I really wanted was, you know, something else. Um, and it, it's like, I think there's a real mix mismatch between um, sexuality and intimacy. Like we think intimacy equals sex equals PIV, you know. Um, and I think that, I think it can be really un- unsatisfying uh, for people. So I work a lot with desires getting in touch with our real desires and 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 what i notice is is when people get in touch with their desires separately of whether they're fulfilled or not just getting in touch with it um brings a lot of aliveness and and a lot of uh, liberation you know the whole point is we tell stories about our journeys and we 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 see what happened when and make sense of it with with other stuff that we've learned along the way uh, and it's fascinating to to, to hear because again, this is your unique journey. And what changed my life was going on a a week long tantra retreat, which was quite edgy. They managed the whole thing very well, and it was a few days close on and then close off, you know. But on paper, I would have hated it. But they guided it really well. But the biggest thing that happened was right at the start they did a screaming exercise and where it was like a tribal just scream you know banging on the floor screaming and then a bit of breathing and then going back in and i felt this thing in my body like a block shoot through my body and suddenly like i was more open than i had been before somehow and that was a cosmic moment like a real wow that was weird i don't know what that was and and 
in the first couple of days, the guy that was leading it, and I do love a Dutch accent, so I do it, you know, and he's like, you know, guys, when you walk down the road and you look at the girl and you say, I, I fucked that one, I, I like that one, that would be great. And and then he says, he said, like, have you ever thought, looking at the girl, say, how will I make this girl's life better? And a f- things in my head snapped. You know, if you call them neural pathway, whatever happens, something, a rewiring just boom. Mm. I was, I have never mm. thought that. I have never given a shit about the experience of the, these girls that I'm basically trying to conquer because my game was knowing that I've got a massive nose and I'm not, and I've funny walk at the time. I'd never worked on my postural walking. You know, how, who's the fittest girls I could bag? And can I consistently bag hot, hot girls that my mates go, fucking hell, Brett, what, you know, God, how are you getting, and it would happen. But because of my you, funny so chat, your silly chat, but, but, but essentially I was, yeah, go on, go on. I've said it. I've said, I've said well, it you're basically. describing, you're describing the, the developmental levels of sex as I see them in our society right now, just perfectly, you know? So first of all, like, okay, we don't, we're young, we don't have a sexual, then we come into sexuality and, you know, with all its difficulty and weirdness and, and whatever. And maybe then the next stage is this kind of like ego stage, if you like. It's the, I call it the sex ninja stage, where we want to become a sex ninja. We want to last longer. We want to create more orgasms. We want to, like, be a tantric mask. We want them, like, one, one teacher I went to see, he's known as the tantric mongoose. I don't know if he's been cancelled. He might have been. I don't know. But he was uh, at this one talk. You know, someone asked him, how did you get into it? He's like, well, you know, I was just like really into this and I enjoyed doing it. And I found this way of using my energy. And then, you know, one lover would go and there would be one waiting outside the door. Um, And he would apparently have like a line of women, like literally waiting outside his door to, you know, to receive his his sexual mastery. Um, So that's the the kind of sex ninja phase. And then I think we go... um, a level beyond that can be like, well, how can I, and, and the sex ninja phase. Yeah. It's for the ego. It's about like, I want to know that I'm good because I'm doing something good to someone else. Okay. And I think we can get, we can get stuck in that phase. We can get stuck in. I want to be really good. And that's how I can be a pre that's how I can fill my hole. That's like, yeah. That's how I can fill my intimacy. It- it's like that. That's the people pleasing thing that I also had that you said, right? Because he, he, and and then you get the adulation. Oh, you're so great at this. By the way, that never happened before I went on this touch retreat. There's no one saying, "Brett, you're a sex god," you know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's that. But I would also like get the hot girl because it looks great. Uh, try and get that reaction somehow. Yeah, uh, people pleasing. Okay, and so the next stage, what you said this guy said to you, how can I make that person's life better? So, yeah, that's really great question. That, that opens it up for the first time we consider more the other person. What's it like for them? What's it really going to be? And there's also like a real shadow and a danger in there. And I've seen this with like all these tantric priests who are wandering around Koh Yang trying to give out as many yoni massages as they can. 
Um, and, and it's this, this shadow of, oh, I'm going to make their life better. Um, but actually, is it really for that person or is it for this person to feel better about themselves? It's giving and it's focused on where does this person want my hands next and really trying to yeah. be present. And then as an artist, the idea that you're being present and that you're there to give and that you're listening and you're aware it's the same dynamics and you're just doing it in this other language that no one's ever told you is exactly the same as all the other ways of communication in terms of if you're aware and present and you're there to give that will be felt it's great to touch on this because it's had a massive influence on my well-being go go for it so what what you've just been describing there is is i think that the top tier of the the sexual evolution and the artistic and, and human evolution and and we could call it the art of giving and receiving the art of listening and giving and being clear, is it for them or is it for me? And also being clear when, it, when it's like when you want to take the stage and when you want to bring yourself forward, when you want to bring that that beat um, about like choosing your moment and, and doing that. And this is like in, in a sexual relationship, it's from, it's like moving from always doing what you think the other person wants to make them happy to being able to express what you would like them to do to you, but also you then becoming responsible for your own happiness and your own pleasure, whether that's by like asking them or whether that's like doing something to them that is within their limits that they're willing to do. Um, and, and that's a high level. Like when, when you talk about being in a band, I, I think about the times in my life when I felt the most complicity with the people that I work with when we've run workshops together, when we, when we ran our sauna together, it was amazing. There was four of us. We were like 21 years old, like young, very young men making our way in the world. And, and my friend ran the cafe and another one did, did all the equipment and another one like really looked after the sauna and I did the entertainment. And it was like a symphony. It was just this symphony. And, and, um, what I realized that when we were running that and everyone was working together, that's when we had our peak experiences with the audience and with the entertainment. And later on, when um, we weren't working together anymore, I didn't have the same backup or same, same ground to, to take the audience in the way that they were taken previously. And I noticed that. It's like everyone's work was making it easier to take the audience to this transcendent place. It's really interesting bringing that, what a great segue into this, because it's the same thing. How much is the success of that situation, like be it your sauna band, it's that relationship. Really not a massive fan of Coldplay, but one thing I really respect and one of the reasons why I think they're still out there rocking it to a very high level is because they they decided to split their publishing four ways. So the drummer gets the same as Chris Martin. And that's quite rare. But it avoids the fact that Chris Martin would have been driving around in a Porsche quite early and the drummer would... 
still be trying to pay his mortgage, you know, and and it's a big subject. It's great to bring it to this 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 podcast because um, I often think about uh, one of my biggest mistakes in management early doors was was firing bass player from a band who and he was a founding member and he was a massive part of their brand the singer was going to do it anyway but the singer put me up to do it and it was a huge error on my part because i think it was the beginning of the end for them they did a couple more albums but i think that was a poisonous scenario but even though the bass player was you know, he was being irresponsible, not turning up to rehearsal, whatever. You'd have to get him out of bed. He'd done too much mushrooms the night before, whatever it was. Instead of finding a way of bringing him along and working with him with that and re- realising that he, the only reason why this thing works is because he's in it, really. I didn't realise, you know, that the greater the, the sum of the parts vibe and... And and never never wonder like if if things are working in terms of your creative output to such a high level, there's always someone in a band that doesn't do anything. There's always that guy. Mm. But but what is what is he she doing? You know what he, what are they bringing? What energy that you don't even realise is being brought in that dynamic situation? Because you've actually proved that when you get together. You you make this music that people love, or you do this sauna that people love, or you know whatever the, the the scenario is that that subject of blame that gets brought up. Where is it coming from? Why are we? Why is there a feeling that this person needs to be blamed for something, and that because there's yeah. probably an issue somewhere. And it probably isn't that person. There's something unspoken happening when there's when there's blame or resentment. And in the art of giving or receiving, giving and receiving, in the art of doing it well, we only give what we're willing to give with an open heart. Because if you give what you're not willing to give, then you become resentful. And then you might blame the person who asked or blame the person that you gave the thing to. And some people kind of make a a career out of it of playing the martyr and um this this comes up sometimes in relationships you know like i've done all this for you i did that i did that and all i wanted was this and you didn't do that for me so i never asked you to do all those things i didn't want you to do those things um so there's something about giving only what you're willing to give and the other part is is about understanding that you know, you are responsible for your own well-being. You are responsible for, for what you're involved in. Now, I don't mean that in some kind of spiritual bypass, you know, if loads of shit's going wrong for you, it's because the universe is trying to take, like, you know, forget about that. But what, um, like, obviously, if someone punches you in the face, like, you know, randomly, you're not responsible for that. But what, what, I, what I mean is like when you can take more responsibility for yourself and your relationships and what's going on, when you're tracking more, am I comfortable about this or am I not comfortable about this? Then you won't end up doing a job for 20 years that you hate. You won't end up in a relationship that you're unhappy about. And instead of running away and leaving that relationship or that job, you just start noticing, oh, actually, this is what I want. And you stop bringing that in like actually i'm not willing to work past seven o'clock anymore do you know what i really need you to do this 
so this is for me the word boundaries which again i came to quite late in life but it's a magical thing when you know if you call deborah on a tuesday night and say do you want to go for a beer deborah and she goes yeah yeah definitely and then she calls you up an hour before and goes actually i can't i can't do a beer next time you call deborah and she says yeah yeah i'll do a beer and then you're like where well, is she gonna cancel an hour before again whereas if she just says look i'm not feeling it tonight can we do next wednesday you're like right deborah's deborah's on point we know where where deborah's at but, but I, Boundaries. I remember i remember i was at a, a conference and someone asked the speaker a question and the speaker said oh i don't know about that and it, it was amazing. It blew my mind. It's the first time I'd seen someone do that. And it was it was just genius. And so when people do that, I love it more. And what something I've noticed in my work, that not making promises that you can't keep, yeah, not saying yes to everything. I've, you know, I've been um, in relationships, like business relationships around people who can't say no. And I know in some cultures, um, they have that as well, right? Like in certain countries, if you ask them, is it this way to the bathroom? They say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no bathroom. There. There's nothing for 12 Japan. miles, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's an interesting cultural thing. But, you know, when you can't, when you can say no to someone, people relax around you. They trust you. Like they, they sink in. And I give this advice when I coach people in their workplace that if you're there and you're saying yes to everything and you're taking all the stress on and you're resentful and you're exhausted and you're not, you're not enjoying it and you, and you let people down, you're not, you're not as valuable as someone who's really clear. Like, yeah, I can do that, but actually that I can't do. What's the priority for this? Like that, that's really important. So saying, saying no and, and also saying yes to only what you're willing to say yes to. It was listening to that and trusting that and helping give me the courage to have difficult conversations with people in my life. Because once you start flexing that, that muscle, you become more fluent in it. And it's easier when you're in an unhappy work relationship or intimate relationship to, to bring it, to bring it up. But I used to be like, what I used to do, I don't know if this is familiar to you is like not say anything about all the things that come up, let it build up and then just basically end the relationship and run away. Like that was my, that's how I used to deal with things before. But now what I've learned to do is things come up. I'm like, Oh God, that feels quite heavy. And I don't know, it might feel like it would end the relationship, but still to be able to, to bring that up and incorporate it, to own it in a way where you're not blaming, you're not judging saying, listen, this thing's happening and I'm finding it difficult. And I, I don't know, you know what it's, how is it for you to hear that? And that actually like brings you together, it strengthens your relationships, it strengthens your your bonds. So I think it's important and especially for artists. I think it's a great place to end on that note, really, because uh, this is the difficult ending for us. But where can people find what you're doing plug a website or something like that thanks brett yeah you can come to adamwilder.com and you can come and check out my uh, workshops on relationships and the wheel of consent and circling and and coaching and oh, come and see the togetherness tent at wilderness festival it's packed full of delicious experiences okay man thanks so much for uh 
for taking the time to to chat and open up like that. Uh, I think I think it's a fascinating chat, and um, yeah, be well. It's been a joy. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us five star rating. And if you want to help other people find the podcast, you can leave a review. Only takes 20, 30 seconds. That would be lovely. See you next time.